Good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Perfect. Hi, I'm Donovan Brown, Senior DevOps Program Manager at Microsoft. And today we're going to be talking about testing and its importance on a DevOps pipeline. And today I have Gopi with me. Hi, I am Gopinath, Principal Program Manager in Visual Studio Team Services. Awesome. I have spent good enough time on testing and um, you know, I will be able to provide you know, whatever knowledge, whatever questions that users have. Perfect, great. So I actually have some questions of my own as well. And I want to talk about how important it is that people actually do testing with their DevOps pipeline. I find a lot of people and a lot of customers, it's kind of disturbing almost how few of them actually run unit tests, right? I mean, I find customer after customer where I go in there and I say, so are you running automated unit testing? And they're like, well, some teams do, some teams don't. And it's like, wow, you want to build this DevOps pipeline so you can rush changes into production, but these are changes that you haven't even verified. Do you see that a lot as well? Oh, 100%. You know, I think <laughs> people are still, you know, used to the you know, old way of executing where, oh, you know what, let me build the product, let me just do manual testing. Right. But in the DevOps pipeline, the most important thing is you want to ship often with higher quality. Exactly. Right? Now that the higher quality is the most important thing. How do you hit higher quality? You want to do automated testing. And in that, the first simplest step is, as you talked about, unit testing. Right? Unit testing is the most simplest and easier to do, and you can get higher reliability as well. Right? Yeah. So we definitely recommend many people you know, doing unit testing. Yeah, and I noticed that because the unit testing capabilities of Visual Studio Team Services have gotten better and better. Not only can we do MS tests, but we started supporting in-unit and X-unit, and uh, you can even do your uh, your Jasmine and your Mocha. Yeah. So if you, I mean, it was like there's nothing we couldn't get to, including Java, right? right? I mean, you guys have heard me say this tons of times. Any language, any platform. Uh, and a lot of people don't believe me, but then I go and I show them a Java build running JUnit tests with code coverage, and their eyes are like, oh my God, you guys are serious. I'm like, yeah, we're oh, serious. Yeah, okay. yes. And then I know I can do it with Mocha, and you can do your, run your pester test. I'm not aware of any testing framework that I've come across yet that I have not been able to run either in my build and or in my release pipeline as well. Right. So I, you know, I think you know, clearly from VSTS perspective, our goal is open, cross-platform, and then we would like to just to say that build any application, test any application, deploy any application. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. the goal that we would like to run. Absolutely. And you can run, even if we don't have a task in there, what I tell people all the time is that because we can run any command line you give us right. on any platform that you want, right. there's not a testing framework we can't execute, right? Yes. We would just run the same command for you. Then we can actually take and parse the results and publish those, including the code coverage Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. You know, you don't want to actually today. When I'm talking to customers, they just say, hey, you know what? I don't know about this. I don't know how to use these tasks. Then I say, hey, you know, how are you running today? We're running through a command line script or you know our own way of executing. I said that's where you can just get started your migration. Right? You don't need to learn anything new. You just take it the way that you are running. Somebody is probably manually triggering it, you know, somebody is running a PowerShell script, it doesn't matter. Just take those put it into the pipeline, start there. Oh my gosh, I, it's funny. It's not, I, I'm, I'm laughing because I see the exact same things to people. I'm like, the investments that you have today, you don't have to throw any of that away. If you're running a script, the difference is, is we're, we're, gonna, we're never gonna forget to run the script, right. and we're gonna run it every single time perfectly with the right parameters. Because even if you ask me to go run a script, I have to first go find the script, right. no telling where it is on my hard drive. Hope I find the right version of the script because I might have multiple copies. And then I have to usually pass in a whole stream of commands or, or parameters that right. if I don't get right, we get weird results out, yeah. right? And now I'm saying, give me that script. 
and I will run it every single time with the right parameters for you on any platform that you want. Right. So that's amazing. That's good to hear that you and I are telling our customers the exact <laughs> yes, same exactly thing when it comes from testing. Thing, yes. Another thing that I find interesting when it just talked about testing purely and not even worry about the DevOps pipeline is that I think people have a hard time understanding what the difference of a true unit test, integration test, UI test actually is. I think I struggled with this when I was younger too. I used to think that a unit test was just a piece of code that I wrote that ran another piece of code. But if you really want to get down to the nitty gritty of what a unit test is, the code in which you're executing has to be isolated. Yes. Right? It has to be isolated from all external dependencies, which means it never really touches the file system, it never really touches your database, it never really makes that web service call. And for a long time, I had a hard time with that because I felt like, man, this is just even more stuff I have to do. I have to learn mocking or fakes or Rhino mocks or MOQ or something to isolate my code. And then I took a flight and I wanted to work on my plane and I didn't have access to the database and I didn't have access to the internet and all my tests are failing, not because the test was wrong or the code was wrong, but because that external resource in which I was replying, uh, relying on simply was not accessible to me any longer. Yes, right. But had I done what real unit tests are supposed to do, and fake out those external resources or isolate me, then my test would have run in past even on that airplane without yes. any connection, right? Yes. And it makes them run faster and it makes them run more reliably. A lot of people talk about flaky tests. That was one of the things that we kept coming up with. We have these flaky tests. And a flaky test is a test that passes sometimes and doesn't pass other times, and you're not quite sure why it doesn't pass. I bet you that's not a true unit test. Oh, that's not a true unit test. Exactly. Because right. if it's flaky, it means you're probably relying on data to be in a database table that's different than it was last time. Or you're, or you're relying on a, on a web service that's slower now than it was when you wrote your test. And it's like, the test isn't what's flaky. It's the fact that you didn't isolate your test properly that's making your test flaky. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100% I agree with you. And the flaky test is where, you know, the issue is in the test code, nothing in the product code. Right. Right? right. The product code is perfect. You know, it always works. But, you know, the way tests, tests are written or the way tests have taken dependency on external, you know, sources like maybe database or, you know, any of the web service or any of the fakes. That's what it means. Right. And I've also noticed that I, I have I've lived this, right? I've been writing software for 20 years. I know what it's like to write right, a test yeah. that sometimes passes and sometimes doesn't. And I have one of them that's an integration test, which is a little tougher because it's hard to, you don't isolate an integration test. An integration test is supposed to test the integration of all of your layers. So that's actually touching real data. Right. And I had this one app where it was very date specific and it had a calendar grid. So I would always create an event three days from the day I ran the test. But if you run it on the end of the month, <laughs> then that, yes. that, yeah, that, that item is now on a page you're not even looking at and my test would fail. Like, hey, I don't see the event. Yeah, because it's actually on the next, next month. Yeah. yeah, it was just like, oh my right. God. So I had to go back in and rethink the way I write my test and offer them and make your test more intelligent to be able to handle those weird little scenarios. So, like so one of the stuff that I heard, you know, by talking to people is, I think flaky tests sometimes are the ones that causes, you know, people to move away from automated testing, Agreed. right? Agreed. They just try to automate it and then, you know, they have not written the test properly and then starts failing it. Why? People will get into, oh, you know what, I have spent so much time automating it, it just continues to fail, right? And then automation, they will just think that is not worth right. giving it non-investment. Yeah. But if you write your test in the right way, boy, that is going to provide you so much high quality, you know, with respect to validating your code and shipping it faster and then make sure that your customers are always happy. I agree with you 100%. I've, I've noticed that writing unit tests has actually made me faster as a developer. And, and it was really hard for me to finally believe that. But now that I, and I tell a lot of my customers this too, 
They're like, Donovan, there's no way in the world that we're going to stop what we're doing today and go write unit tests for a decade's worth of legacy code. Right. I said, I didn't ask you to. Right. Yeah. But do me this favor. The very next bug you get, the very next bugs report that you get, do not fix the bug until you have an automated test that exploits that one bug. That's how you start. Because then, instead of setting up this complicated scenario, because I do this all the time, right? You go in, you set up the environment, you run through your test, yep, I see it fail. You go make a code change, and now you manually have to go clean up everything, set up the environment again, run your test just to realize that that code fix didn't fix it. Yes. So crap, now I gotta go make another code change, go clean up everything again, and it's just this laborious just task of tearing it down and running it again. I hope that fix it. Nope, okay, tear it down and run it again. But a unit test, once written, you just run it and it fails. And you make a code change and you run it and it fails and you make a code change. It's almost like, it's almost like you're playing, uh, what is it, slot machine. Yes. You make a change, pull the lever, and then in an instant you know if you did it or not. And that is there now forever to protect you from that bug ever showing up again. If I just fix it and I don't write a test, that bug could show up again yes. and I will never know. Right. 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 Yeah. You know, 100% I agree with you. Now, let me just tell you in Microsoft sure. what exactly was the problem and how we have, you know, solved some of those, how we are making progress. Great. If you ask us maybe, you know, in the, in the, you know, Microsoft, in the Visual Studio Team Services team, three years ago, we had the same problem. <laughs> right? We just had only big, fat functional tests which take a dependency on UI. All are UI driven, and obviously you know, anything that is UI driven, there is a chance that it can be faking, right? And then we didn't have any unit tests at all. That was three years ago. And then you know, when we started, we explicitly made a call saying that we would like to consciously invest, and it is not that I will throw away all my tests and then for all my legacy code, I will start covering it up. We said, oh, you know what, let's start with our new features. Any new feature that we are implementing it, that just to make sure that it, there is a good unit test coverage that exists. And that's how you can just start, take baby steps, step by step. And today, I can you know 100% tell you that every developer, whenever he checks in a feature, he's making sure that the corresponding unit tests are written. Awesome. In addition to that, now we started looking at how much you know integration tests that we had. I think you know I don't remember the exact number, but you know roughly we were we had around 10,000 and odd integration tests. Now we are trying to cut down those, convert some of those into unit tests as and when we touch some of those code pieces. Sure. So that's the approach, you know. There is no simple way of solving this problem. It is just about you need to just take step by step. Right. Especially when you're talking about a legacy code base, right? right? If you're talking with a Greenfield application, you could do things like test-driven development, right. right? Which will give you basically 100% code coverage from line one to the end of your code, which is 100% code coverage. It's another thing, because one of the questions was, what's your opinion on code coverage, right? And I remember the first time I learned about code coverage, I geeked out so hard, the hair on my arms. So I was like, this is freaking awesome. I'm going to be able to see exactly where I need to go back and test. And right. I, in my mind, I, when I was a little kid, I used to go to the dentist. And afterwards, he would give me these little blue pills. What you do is you go home and you brush your teeth. And then you chew on this pill, and when you smiled, you could see where you missed brushing. To me, that was code coverage for my code. It was like, it's going to tell me where I need to go test. And I remember I spent days trying to get this one page of a website, 100% code coverage. And I thought, wow, I did it. There's no more bugs there. Right? And if you've done anything with code coverage, you know that that's a fallacy. Just because I executed all the paths of code does not does mean the code is bug free. Okay. And I remember I shared this with a, I was a, used to be a consultant and I shared this with a customer once and he just, he just didn't believe me. So he ran off and he loved code coverage like I did. He went and he wrote all this code, this test until he got 100% code coverage. And he came back in and he put his feet on the desk and he put his hands behind his head. He's like, man, my code is perfect, 100% code coverage. I look over his shoulder, I'm like, hey, you mind if I write one more test? Just 
just one more test. Like, I don't understand why. It's 100% code curve. It's like, just want to run one more test for you. So the, I noticed that the very first line of his method said string.length equals zero. Okay. So what I did, I passed it null, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he was so devastated because like, I don't understand. Like, no, your test executed all the paths of code. But you did not go in there and explicitly try to break your code. You wrote the code and use it as it was designed to be used. But when you're thinking about that, you have to remember when you're writing an API, you don't get to control the people calling you. Right. You yeah. need to be defensive in your programming. And just because you had 100% code coverage did not mean that your code was bug free. Oh. So I tell a lot of people that too. Oh, it's 100%. I don't know whether if anybody thinks, oh, you know what, I have 100% code coverage and I'm bug free, <laughs> then that's wrong. And I did that. I did. thing also. <laughs> I don't know whether we should also push people saying that always go try for 100% code coverage. If you just yeah. go on that for a you know legacy code base, then you know you will end up spending all your lifetime just getting it. Absolutely. There. So I think it is a fine balance that is needed. The code coverage, 100% code coverage, is just telling you saying that you definitely have some coverage that is available. Correct. Right. But it is not the complete code exactly. coverage. Exactly. It will just give you some amount of confidence, but not. Oh, you know what? I'm done with it. Absolutely, absolutely. What, what I tell a lot of my teams, because when I run Scrum teams, I actually have in my definition of done the minimum code coverage. Right. And what we do, and I tell my teams, stop worrying about what the number is. Let's focus on the movement right. of the number. Right. What I mean by that is that that number has two options, stay flat or right. go up. Right. If it goes down, yes. you, we need to have a conversation. Yes. So that means you just introduced code and you right. introduced zero test for that code. And right. that, to me, is a problem. Yes. So at our retrospective, at the end of every sprint, what my teams would do is we would now look at the new code coverage minimum. And I, it, every, every sprint, it would go up and we would stay with that. And it's like, that's what I want you guys to focus uh, on. You know, I think that's a fantastic principle. I think, you know, today we don't have it in the product, but I think, you know, that's what one of the customer requests that I keep on getting saying that, can I keep gates, right? You know, because as you said, one of the goals that people want is, you know, they have spent their effort and then reached a certain stage. Now, how do I keep the policy at the entire organization level saying that can I at least maintain it for all the new features that right. are coming in? Because if you don't do it, then again, you will fall back into the old it's technical plan. debt. Technical debt. Technical exactly. debt. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So what I do know is that we've been working with SonarCube. Mm -hmm. And in SonarCube, you can actually set a, a code coverage gate. Right. And uh, our VSTS build can now fail based on your gates inside oh, of SonarCube. Nice, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can that's actually nice. give you that. I was working with some of those guys. I was like, this is this is going to change. That's nice. Because yeah, we just have to manage it and, like, and monitor it ourselves. But uh, right. yeah, so again, be careful with code coverage. It is not a silver bullet. It is a, a metric that you can use to make sure. Because if your definition of done says you have to write unit tests for all the code you write, right. and that number dips, you know someone just violated your definition of done. Right, regardless of it. I think, yeah, if you keep it to the code coverage to that level, saying that I'm adding new feature, I'm adding new code, do I have test for it? Yeah. And are they, you know, meeting the bar that is set at the end? Absolutely, absolutely. And I thought of the point that you made about people struggling to get their test to pass, and then it kind of deters them from writing tests. It's such a valid statement. And another thing that I find, which is interesting, is when I convince people to write tests, and they just pass and pass and pass, they also think it's a waste of time. Yes. Right. But what I what I tell them is, the one time it saves you, you're going to be so thankful that you did. Right. So I think one of the questions that came over on Twitter was, well, when can I delete tests that always pass? Never. Yeah. Right. You can never delete those tests because if you do, that's the moment that the bug falls into your code that that test would have told you. Because I used to play, I used to call a joke. I play ping pong with myself. 
Mm. I'm sure you've done this as a developer, right? right? Yeah. Your boss comes in over your shoulder. He's screaming at you. Oh my God, there's a bug in production. You need to go fix it. You drop everything that you're doing and you go in and you code a fix with no test, right? right. Yeah. And then you push out into production. Everyone's happy. And then a week later, a different bug shows up. Right. And you're like, that's weird. So you go and you do the same thing. Fire drill. You fix the other bug. And then mm -hmm. a week later, the original bug shows up again. Yes. You're like, what's going on here? I, it's like deja vu. I know I just fixed this. What you don't realize is the system is so complicated that that method that you're changing right. is breaking one when it fixes the other. However, yes. had I written a unit test the first time I fixed it, and then when I went to fix the second bug, I would have fixed it, written a unit test, and when I ran my test, the first test would have failed. I'm yes. like, oh my God, they're related. I had no idea. Let me go figure out how do I fix both tests. Right. And you stop playing ping pong for it yourself. So you can't get rid of the tests that are passing right. because those are the ones that are protecting you from making a mistake. Oh, it's 100%. I think the only, or one approach that people can take is, you don't need to run all the tests that are passing on a daily basis. Very good point. Right? So that's the only thing that you can say. You know, you still need to run them, oh, you know what, should I run it on instead of daily basis or every check-in basis, can I run them on a weekly basis? That's the call that you can make. But stopping tests, stopping all the tests always is not the right approach. No, I think that's a great suggestion. Great suggestion. Because I, I tell people that too, because uh, if you're using TFVC, we have this concept of a gated build. Historically, every team that I've ever enabled that on, all the developers stop working and they want to watch and see if their gate passes, right? And it's like, guys, you don't have to stop working. We have a workflow that can let you go rectify this if it were to fail, but they don't. Right. They check in their code and they sit there and they wait. And I'm like, okay, so if you're going to wait for this to, to finish, I need to make sure it's fast. Yes. So what I would do is I wouldn't run, like you just suggested, I would run the most critical unit test okay. And then at night, I would also run a nightly build. I'd run all the unit tests, right? right. So that's how I would divvy it up right. is that yeah. let's run them, run them quickly so that my developers get their butts back to work and right. stop waiting for their gate to pass. And then at night when it takes four hours, who cares? Right. Because we're all asleep, we're at home. Let's run every single test that we have. And in the morning, we know the yeah, test. So that's, you know, that's, the, that's the approach. That, yeah, that's fantastic. The second approach that is possible is, for example, oh, you know what? I've been, you know, doing, uh, you know, testing for this particular feature, but for this feature, absolutely there are no code changes that have been done for last six months or eight months. That's another place where you can again good take point. risks. Very good point. Yeah. So right. what it's you want about to... the code churn, yep. the frequency. These are the knobs that you can play with. Right. But you should always run all the tests at some frequency. Agreed. Agreed. That's what you know. You need to figure it. And out. and that's why you need to automate because manual tests take a lot longer to run. Right. They introduce human error. Right. right. Even when they're scripted, humans get tired, they get distracted. I get an email or an IM or my phone tweets and then I turn back around and I don't remember what step I was on and yeah. maybe I assume things are right. Um, but that's interesting that I still believe that we are well away from not needing manual tests. How do you yes. feel about that? You oh, agree with that as well? Yeah. Yes. Automate as much as you possibly can, but to push anything that has a user interface into production without a human looking at it to me is a mistake. I completely agree with okay. you. And, you know, there are scenarios where, in fact, if you actually spend the time, you know, doing the automation for those, your ROI will go down, <laughs> right? And then that's when you will just realize, man, why did we spend automating it? And then, you know, people, some people will just come back and then question it. So that's why there are some scenarios, specific scenarios. It is worth doing all the stuff manually than automating. You know, typical examples are any animation workflows. That's a good point. Right, if you, yeah. are, if you just have any animation workflows, it is worth doing. And then, for example, you know, you're creating a new account, all the CAPTCHA kind of stuff. You will never automate those. Correct. Correct. Right? You just want to, the only thing is those you will probably validate, you know, based on your frequency, based on your release, then validating on a daily basis. Right, exactly. But yeah. manual testing is relevant 
it is still needed. I, I agree. And if, for example, charts are really hard. Like right. if, if you render a chart or render a GIF or as part of your uh, part of your workflow, it's very difficult to do that. Another story I was told is like localization. Yeah. Words in different languages are drastically different lengths. And a computer will be able to verify, yes, you changed the text, but it can't verify that the button or the menu expanded or yes. shrunk to accommodate the new word itself. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it was in a previous interview that I did, but I was told a story where they made a CSS change mm -hmm. and they ran it through all their automation and everything looked great. Okay. They pushed it out into production and no one was clicking on one of their buttons. They didn't understand. Mm. The CSS change made the text and the button the same color. Oh. <laughs> The computer would happily click the button, right? Because it knows what button to click. Yeah. A human being would be out of their mind to click that button that had no text on it yes. because of a CSS change. And that's a perfect example mm. where manual testing is still relevant, right? Yeah. There's just certain things that are really difficult to automate. And again, you're just wasting your time if you try to. Right. Right. And what I like about our tool set is the way that our approvals work, you can have the system pause and wait for you to go do that mm -hmm. type of manual testing. Exploratory testing is another fantastic technique that finds lots and lots of bugs because you have someone come in whose sole intent is to break your code. Correct. Right? Yeah. Whenever I test my own code, it always works perfectly. Oh, yes. Because I use it exactly like it was designed to be written. Right. But when you have an outsider or a customer go and use your code, you can't guarantee they're not going to type letters or numbers are supposed to go. And did I do the right validation? Or did I just try to parse an it yes. that has Donovan in it? Yes. Right? And then I'm going to get this unhandled exception and things like that. Yep. So. Uh, completely agree with that. Perfect. So uh, one of the questions that came off of Twitter was, um, when should we use Selenium versus Coded UI? Okay. So the, let me first talk about the fundamental differences between these two. Okay. Coded UI was built, you know, probably 10 years ago. And Selenium is the latest one, which is completely following all the open platform principles, and then it is extensible. It can work with, you know, any browser which implements the driver methodology. Right. Whereas Coded UI, for each uh, browser or for each platform, you actually need to have stuff implemented in the backend, which drives the engine, <coughs> right? So the Coded UI engine. And the advantage of Coded UI is it can actually generate the code too. It can generate the code and you know, generated code is what you can test it. But in the modern world, in the modern world, you know, there are so many UI technologies that are available. It is hard for us to catch up on Coded UI. So what we are recommending people is, if your application has to work on cross-plat and multiple browsers, we recommend you using Selenium because Selenium is faster. Selenium works on all uh, OS platforms, different browsers, and then it works based on a remote wire protocol. That remote wire protocol makes it a little bit more reliable. Now, where do I recommend using Coded UI? I think today, assume you have a WinForms application or a WPF application. Now you want to test those. I think that's where Coded UI probably will do a better job because it can generate the code, it can run the code more reliably. Right, right. I, that's pretty much so the answer the I give to. Yeah. That's the answer I give to. And what I tell everyone as well is that it doesn't matter which one you choose because we can run them both. Right. Right. Which yes. is another thing that's fantastic. Right. Like whichever one you're more comfortable. Um, I have a couple videos on Coded UI because I, I again saw this technology, knew it could help me, 
and I just absorbed myself in it. So I can do a lot of cool stuff with it, but as you mentioned, getting it to run other browsers was tricky. You had to have the Selenium plugin in addition to Coded UI just to get it to run in Firefox and Chrome, right. and you were still confined to a Windows machine. So Safari was out, Correct. right? Doing any cross-platform was out. And I've been playing with Selenium, and I have to completely agree that it, it's very, very fast. Um, but I say, I also tell customers this. If you're only doing web development, I'd probably start and stay with Selenium. Mm -hmm. If yeah. you're doing both mobile development and fat client development, I'd probably get as much out of coded UI as I possibly can because that way I only have to learn one technology and right. I can test, test both applications, right? So for me, it's like, whoa, what are you doing with it? Right. And let's, let's let that also help drive your decision on which one that you go. Because I've done a little bit of both, and you can actually intermingle them as well. So don't yeah. think that you have to choose one and yeah. you're stuck with it. I literally have one test project right. that some of my tests are written in Coded UI, some of them are written in Selenium because either I couldn't figure out how to do it in one technology or the other, or right. it was much easier for me to do in the other because pop-up dialogues, like for confirmation dialogues, for some yeah. reason in Selenium I have trouble with those. Yeah. But inside of Coded UI, they're really easy to deal with. Right. So sometimes I pick which platform I use depending on what it is I'm trying to test. As I well. think you know you made a great point. Right? It's about you can definitely mix and match. Absolutely. At the end of the day, the test is at unit level. Exactly. For example, any test method you're writing, now inside that single test method, you can just use one technology. Exactly. Now you can just mix and match all of these and then keep any number of tests. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. a great point. Yeah, yeah. So I just tell people, use what fits the best uh, right. for what it is that you're trying to do. Right. Um, so yeah, I think we've kind of addressed some of these. We have thousands of tests that, that many never fail. That should be a pat on your back, right? Yeah. If you're writing code and you have thousands of tests and it never fails, you guys are probably writing some pretty good code. I would never get rid of those. But I think we should take your suggestion and determine when do you run those. Because again, you don't want to impede your developer's progress. You don't want them waiting for that CI build to finish before they get back to work. Um, and so let's make sure it, it, if it's going to fail, make it fail fast and then go ahead and do those tests later on as well. So this is one of the stuff we are just doing it on that part is in Microsoft. In the CI, or you know, not in the CI. Before CI, we have you know PR submits. Those are the gated check-ins that Jonathan was talking about. As part of the gated check-ins, you actually run unit tests and then run real P0 tests across the division perspective. Mm. I think those are the only two we will run as part of every code check-in. Gotcha. Now, once this is done, the next thing that will kick in is the CI. Now, as part of the CI, in addition to running whatever was run on the PR, you want to run all of those. Plus, you want to run a little bit more. For example, you know some of the database schema-related tests, and then few really integration tests mm -hmm. that we run this as part of the CI, because you know assume two CIs you know get submitted at the same time from different branches. You know there is a chance that you know it'll work here, it'll work here, boy. But you know what? The code change can fail on the integration. So mm -hmm. that's where the CI can catch. Sure. Now, once the CI build is available, we will actually trigger the next set of our L1 or L2 tests. Okay. Those are the ones we'll just call it as L1 and L2 tests. And those are the big integration tests. And then gotcha. some of those we run on a nightly basis. Some of them we run on once in a week. So that's how we get the complete coverage, but in a staggered fashion, so that you know we are productive. Perfect. I, I remember back in 2008, TFS maybe it was, when we first introduced gates, if you introduced a gate, your CI wouldn't run. Right, it kind of, and I remember having to go back in and figure out a way to get rid of that weird like no CI comment or whatever it is that we put in there because I did exactly what you suggested. My gate was really short. Yes. And then I would run a CI right after it that would do the testing for us just like you suggested because again, I don't know why we wait for our gates. Yes. Right? And, you, and you shouldn't but instinctively people do and I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to fix this, right? I'm just going to make your gate pass but I know that it compiles because what I did with my gate was 
I wanted to make sure that if anyone did a get latest, they could still compile. Right. Right. So all my gate did was make sure I could do a get latest, I could compile. Right. Great. Get back to work. Right. Now I'm going to go run all your, your run not all your tests, but a big battery of your test. And then at night we ran the full battery of tests. So we did the same stagger thing that you're describing. Yes. And and the the beautiful thing is, you know, whatever I talked about, oh, you know, what check-in tests versus you know, your CI test versus running the functional test. I think VSTS has a nice, very simple automation flow that is possible for you to configure it. Right. Right. So anybody, you can configure, you know what I'm saying, and then use this, and then achieve your DevOps goals that you have set with respect to testing purposes. Right. Because I think testing is critical because it's not about rushing crap to production. It's about rushing yes. high quality. It's like, high quality. Like in, the in the definition of DevOps, I say deliver value. Right. Right, not bugs, yes. value, right? And to deliver value, you have to make sure that what we're checking in is good. And if you're still in the world where you have a, um, a separate QA team, where a lot of our customers are, where you throw that code over the fence, by writing unit tests and running them through your DevOps pipeline, you're throwing much higher I quality agree. code over the fence. That's going to reduce the technical debt and the bugs that come rushing back towards you. And that distrust that becomes, right? Because I remember. The, the QA would just sigh when they got a new build mm -hmm. of code from us. We're like, oh, yeah. here we go, right? What's going to freaking be broken now? And then all of a sudden, this ton of bugs would come back, and then the developers feel like they're under, they're overwhelmed now because they have this bug and they have these new features. And it's like, dude, it's quality. That's what that's what we're giving up. Yeah. And I find that interesting too because a lot of customers, whenever you're under pressure, quality is the first thing that goes. Right. Yeah. Right. Because what ends up happening is like this date is. Unmovable. Right. That date is given, right? right? And we need all the features, right? There's no way we can ship without the features. Well, guess what we're going to do to cut corners? Right. We're not going to write any unit tests, any automated tests. We're going to be code complete. We're going to make that date with all the features. But if I were you, I wouldn't use that I feature. <laughs> exactly, right? Yes. Because it's not going to work. So what they had need to realize is that the only thing, if the date truly can't be moved, neither can quality. Oh, yeah. Right? Quality should be the one constant in every DevOps pipeline is quality is a must. So either the date moves or the amount of features uh, we deliver has to be smaller, yes. right? So that we can actually get that throughput. And you need to under you need to explain this to your stakeholders, right? They're adults. They're smart. These are intelligent people who know better than to think that they can have all of it, right? I can have the date. I can have the features. And I can have the quality. No, you're gonna get two of those things, right? Yes. And one of them that you should never ever sacrifice is quality, because when your reputation takes a hit right. because you produce crap. And today, in such an aggressive market, if I don't like what you do, there's 12 other people doing the exact same thing. Right. And you only have to mess up one time for me to go over there, and I will not leave them until they mess up too. Yes. Right? Getting me back is so much more difficult because I have so many more options. Gone are the days of the monopoly where I could give you crap and you just had to grin and bear it. Yes. Right? So right. I, I, I can't stress enough how important it is that people start doing some really good yeah. fundamental uh, unit tests. It's going to make you faster, which is such a paradox. People just don't believe it, but it makes you so much faster. Right. This is just one more point. I think sure, all sure, are sure, fantastic sure, sure. and I agree with you. Just to help customers do their unit testing faster, I think Visual Studio has a nice feature called IntelliTest. For sure. Right? Where, you know, if you're getting started, if you want, you know, write a lot more unit tests for your, you know, existing code or the new code, then you can just right-click on a method and then use IntelliTest. I, you know, the reason I'm just say, you know, telling you this as a, you know, stopgap or you know, initial first step for people to get started, because you know, I don't want people to have this culture of, oh, I will always depend on the tools to do it. Sure. Tools can do it only to some extent. Sure. But at some point, you guys always need to look at, oh, you know what, 
is this the right test that I need to try Absolutely. it or you know should I write more tests? Absolutely. You guys need to look at it because you know that IntelliJ test will give you automatically 100% code coverage. But as Donovan was talking about, 100% code coverage <laughs> does not mean that there is no bugs. There are no bugs. Exactly. So, um, another thing that I like to use IntelliTest for is when I'm going to a method that I now need to modify. I need to verify that my modification doesn't break its existing behavior. Yes. Right? IntelliTest can do a really good job of, let me go ahead and give you a baseline that these tests that are passing now, after you make your change, better still pass yes. after. And I didn't have to sit there and write all these right. tests, and especially for a method I don't even really understand yeah. very well, yeah. to f make sure that when I'm done making my code change, it still does what it did before. I, you right? know, I think this is the same scenario. Remember, you talked about a scenario where saying that, oh, you know what, your manager came on the last year about yep. you know, fix this life site issue. Yep. Before you start fixing it, if you can just generate unit test, keep them, and then you know you do your code change, and then run them again, so and then make sure exactly that'll definitely help. Absolutely, I completely agree with that. Stop playing ping pong with yourself yes. as well. This is really good. All right, so we answered the question about flaky tests. We answered the question about never get rid of tests that are passing. But I love the ideas of making sure that we run them in the right order. Uh, we talked about code coverage. We talked about Selenium versus Coded UI. Um, now, there's one question. How do I decide when to use feature versus integration tests? I'm not quite sure I kind of understand that, but uh, do you think you understand what that is? No, I don't know the question. He says, yeah, how do I decide when to use feature versus integration tests? Now, uh, to me, integration tests are tests that test the entire pipeline, right? From user interface to middle tier to database and back again. That's an integration test for me. A feature test, um, to me, that would almost be the same thing, right? When I'm thinking of, I need to go test this feature, uh, that's a, where I'm going to go write the test first. Now, this is another technique that I use when I'm running Teams too, uh, is where I make them write a manual test before they write a single line of code, right? So this is another testing technique that you guys can use. It's amazing how it's almost like a design technique. Because another thing that people don't understand is test-driven development is not a testing technique. It's mm -hmm. a design pattern, right? Mm -hmm. It's a design technique. And when I forced my developers to say, before you can write code, you have to show me a manual test of how you're going to test it, it made them think about literally every button click, every interaction with the system to a point to where they knew what they were going to click and where and what the expected results were. And what they wrote the first time was so much better than assumptions they might have made had they not thought oh. it through. And then once they had that test there, we could then run that manual test. You could run it now. Because mm -hmm. I literally wrote the script. So I'm not even responsible for testing my own code anymore. I could write it. You could go run the manual test. And then once the manual test passed, then we would go and try to automate that manual test that was not passing. Right. Uh, you know, I think that's a fantastic point. That will actually tell you, you, you know, once you run through this, then you will be able to realize which parts are easy to automate which parts you still want to keep it as manual testing. Exactly. That's a great point, you know, because you will know that, oh, you know what, you know, this part, there is no way this graph validation part, that, you know, kind of stuff that you were talking about, there is no way you can, you know, do it automatically. Anytime there is a dynamic data involved, you would like to do manual testing. So it will help in the other way too. Absolutely. For you to figure it out, not only, oh, you know what, what I can test it, but you can also figure it out what I can automate. Absolutely. Another thing that I learned uh, the hard way when I first started doing, because I was a big fan of web tests too, uh, that we use for our performance testing. Mm -hmm. I, I need to do like a webcast on that because I think that is like an unsung hero. That technology is so much more powerful than people give it credit for. And I, it's a personal pet peeve of mine that they renamed it to web performance tests because they're powerful beyond just using them for performance yeah. tests, right? The, right? What yeah. you could do with the plugins and the extensions and custom validators and custom extraction rules are just such a powerful technique. 
But I remember when I first started using that technology, and a lot of people are making the same mistake when they start automating a test case, is they automate the entire test case as one test, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have to log into a website, every single test has the same seven steps at the beginning, right. such that if you were to change the login sequence, all of a sudden you have thousands of tests that all have the first seven lines that are all wrong, yeah. and all of a sudden it becomes, I literally remember not wanting to change mm -hmm. my site for mm -hmm. fear of how it was going to impact my test. Oh. And that's horrible. <laughs> right? that's, that's horrible. It's horrible. Like, you're not adding value exactly. because of your test score. Exactly. So what you have to do is when you're starting to do a lot of automation, especially UI automation, think modularly. Yeah. I think of what would the method look like that just knows how to log in to my website? Yes. And then what I do is I write that literally as a function called login. And then in my test method, I call the login method that knows the five or six steps to log into my website. And then the rest of my test is below. Yes. So should and if my login ever changes, I change that one method and thousands of tests now know how the new way to log into my test. So please don't write these huge, large, monolithic tests yes. when you can actually think about, I'm going to have to do this in every test that I write. Because every mm -hmm. test you're probably going to have to log in. Every test you're probably going to want to do X, Y, or Z. Right. Think of it modularly and just simply call those. That's another thing. Cody UI and Selenium yes. do a great job of breaking right. that up. Like I, that. Know, I think that's probably is what meant by feature testing versus Maybe. integration testing, right? You know, feature testing is, oh, you know what? Can I test my just the login or you know authentication component, Maybe. right? You're yep. just validating whether my authentication component works fine or not. Now, the integration testing is about, oh, you know what? I have a login UI available. I yep. have an authentication module available. Now, after authenticated, where do I go? Right. That's Those are the three different modules you're actually going to do. And stitch them together. If you now do it at a feature level or a single component level testing, it'll be fantastic. It'll help you, you know what, I replace now, I changed complete my login UI with now CAPTCHA or some of those things yep. got introduced. For sure. All your authentication, all your other tests will continue to work. Absolutely, because in the past, if I would have added a CAPTCHA, hundreds of tests would immediately fail and I would just be like, is it worth it? Right? Right. Is it freaking worth adding that? And now I, one of two things have to happen. I either stop running those tests because I know they're going to fail right. and I lose the protection that they give me or I spend an inordinate amount of time fixing those tests yes. with this sick feeling in my stomach that when am I going to have to fix them again? Yes. And that's when I started getting really modular in all of my design right now. Even when I'm doing Selenium or Coded UI, I use a method where I code all of it by hand, even though Coded UI can generate it, and actually mm. Selenium with a Firefox plugin can generate it too, I write all of mine by hand mm. from scratch. Yeah. And what I do is I have a page model. So if I have a login page on my website, if you look at my test code, you'll see a login page that knows how to do everything on that login page. Click button, enter the text, whatever the case might be. Right. And then if you look at one of my test cases, it's like you're reading yourself through my, my UI such that I can just go change, I upgrade the, t the page on my site, upgrade the page in my test, and then everything just continues to work. So yes. just again, when you're thinking about your test, don't think monolithically. Think about modules that you can write that you can reuse to make sure that your your integration doesn't become an, a hindrance to your productivity, yeah. but also is able to shape. Because it's going to get refactored just like your UI, right? Every time you change your app, you might have to go back and refactor your test to go with it. Yes. And that should be a part of your definition of done, though. I tell everybody that when you say, when are you going to be done, it's not when I'm code complete. Right. It's when it's tested and ready to be deployed. Agile has changed right. what that definition I, that I, means. Yeah. I think you know, the acceptance criteria is becoming now new norm. Everybody should just follow this. And as part of the acceptance criteria, it should include, oh, you know, this is the feature that I've completed. Here are the unit tests that I've run it. I have written it. And then by the way, I have run it. They are passing as well. Yep, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I think if you just follow this and at some point, at later point, as you were just you know bringing it up, the scalability, the web performance test, 
will become critical absolutely because you know this is at feature level now once you start you know adding all the features you want to make sure that all your features are scalable right right and the only way you can just do some of these is with web performance test exactly. doing a load testing exactly and like i said the web performance test um i was shocked after I started digging deeper inside there. Because I remember I gave you the analogy of where I would use a date and then the date would be on the wrong mm -hmm. calendar and things like that. Every time I ran that, I remember I used to have this one test that was flaky because when I recorded the test, it recorded the exact date right. that I had run the test. Right. Okay. So eventually, that date was in the past, right? Because I was like, oh, I'm going to run this test and for three weeks it ran great. And then all of a sudden it'd start failing because yeah. the date was hard-coded <laughs> to yesterday, right? So I, I went in and I realized that I was able to write a plugin Right. That I could then ask at runtime, give me a date three days from today. Yes. Always, right? right. Like, uh, cause another problem. That push, but that test ran always until like the end of the month. <laughs> then it would yeah. say, hey, this is the end of the month, and now we're just exa exactly, right. exactly. Right. Okay. But that just goes to show that I could extend the framework, yeah. right, to make it. And I'm sure a lot of the different testing frameworks out there, you could definitely extend as well. So, is there anything else that you want to share or, or things that we didn't talk about? We didn't really talk a lot about performance tests and load testing, but we obviously enable that for you through our test framework as well. Um, we talked about code coverage. Was there anything else that you wanted to share with us before we wrap up? Uh, I think, you know, we have called most of those. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And. Uh, the, the, the one point, you know, I'm just, you know, highlighting it again. Now, people who are adopting DevOps pipeline, right, do not neglect from testing perspective. Please don't. Without testing, without quality assurance, without making sure that the features that you are, you know, building are not complete if you have not validated it. I agreed. I agreed. I, I think it's just critical. Uh, and, I, and again, uh, going back to my, my time as a process consultant, as a scrum master, I got the best results out of every team when I took that external QA team and I brought them into our planning meeting. I brought them into our daily stand-ups. They became actual team members mm -hmm. because they ask questions that developers don't ask, right? right. When you're looking at a, a item, like how long is it going to take you to finish that? Oh, that seems easy. I can do that in like a week. And that's how long it takes the guy to code it. Right. Yeah. Right. But it won't be ready in a week right. because he's going to throw it over the fence and a whole horde right. of bugs are going to come back. Uh, right. And then all of a sudden he's going to take them two weeks. But if you had the QA person in the room during the planning, they would have said, well, it might only take you a week to finish it. But based on all the number of inputs and outputs, it's going to take us another week and a half to test that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden people start to realize you're not going to get this for three weeks, yeah. not a week from today. Right. So which yeah. is really important. And, it, and then again, they would ask questions my developers didn't so that the actual requirement was at a much higher level of quality because we had thought about those edge conditions because all developers want to do is go sling code. Mm -hmm. And testers think completely differently, right, about what are our customers going to do? What mistakes could they accidentally make? What would happen if I put letters there? Would this date actually validate correctly or not? Right. Do we have good validation to where if I don't put in anything or, you know what I mean? So yeah. it was really powerful to have the QA people involved earlier. Yeah. It helped my developers write better code. Right. It helped them write better unit testing as well. Another thing I wanted to talk about before we left, we talked about test-driven development just briefly. Test-driven development is hard. I'll just, just go ahead and say yes. that, right? It is not easy, right. but what I've noticed is, uh, and you mentioned this a little earlier when we talked about legacy code and mm -hmm. then going back and trying to write tests for it, getting 100% is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that because I remember, I didn't always write unit tests. Yeah. I'm a believer now, but I wasn't always. And then when I became a believer, I had all decades worth of code. And to go back in there and try to reach any modicum level of of code coverage was really difficult because yes. I had so many if conditions and so many just 
long, high levels of cyclomatic complexity because I didn't care about test driven. Yes, at that right? point. Yeah. Exactly, but when you do test driven development, your code is cleaner. And I've also noticed that even if I'm thinking about the test I'm going to write, I write my code differently because mm. I'm thinking, oh, that's going to be hard to test. Right. right? That's going to be difficult to test. Even if I don't write the test first, but I'm thinking about the test first, and, I'm, and I know that I'm going to go write them at some point, even if it's right after, I have literally completely rewritten a method because I saw that is going to be hard for me to test. There's no way I'm going to get into this nook and cranny yeah. of this particular if statement. So let me go ahead and refactor that. Let me go ahead and separate this out into methods that are going to be easier for me to test. And then I go back in and start using it. Yeah, so yeah, it's fantastic. 100% I agree. Now, the just, just another thing is, if any team comes back and then says, oh, you know what, we have now one week or two week worth of test passes, then I don't know, you know how much they are practicing the DevOps or new things. Sure, right? sure. Now, it definitely does take for large products a week worth of testing too. But you know what, if it is just continuously taking it, that means, you know, they still need to go back, look at their processes, and then how can they improve it? How can they cut it? Because it takes a week for you to you know do the testing, and then afterwards bugs will come, and then you have to fix those bugs, yep. and then you know ship your product, sure. validate. So essentially, three weeks will be just gone for this end-to-end -end process itself. Absolutely. Now, how much value that you can add on a continuous basis? So it becomes hard. If you just to try to push your testing early, you know that's what we just call it as shift left, as much as possible shift left to unit testing, shift left from manual testing to integration testing, and do some amount of manual testing and then ship it then you'll have higher quality and good confidence on shipping the product on the timelines. Yeah, better Your velocity. customers are happy too. Absolutely. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming nice to the show. To you, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. Yep. Good night. Bye. Thank you. Bye.